0: Father, we thank you for the grace that you have given us, for the grace that meets us week in and week out, that meets us in the midst of our sin, our anxieties, that meets us in the mire and the muck of our lives, meets us in the midst of our frustrations, our anger, our doubts, our fears, we thank you that that grace is real. And we ask that as we hear your word tonight and as we eat uh, your supper, that that grace would become just a little bit more real to us. That it would get just a little bit deeper down into our hearts and that it would truly set us free. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, it's good to preach to you again, but this time to do it actually kind of knowing you. uh, I can tell you, preaching to people you don't know and not knowing what their facial expressions mean uh, can be a little stressful, as you'd imagine. And now, because we're in winter, there's such a glaring uh, glory of the Lord light shining in my face that I can't see most of your faces anyways. So I guess the pressure's off. Um, But yeah, so we're, uh, as you can tell... In this series in Advent, right? And we are talking about why it is that Jesus came. And historically, Advent uh, is the beginning of the church year. The church kind of gets a head start on the rest of the world as we kind of reign in the new year. And it's a beginning that looks ahead to Jesus' coming again. To what God will do when he comes to reign in power, to make all things new. And that is where we are headed. And yet the scriptures, and therefore the church, have a unique way of looking ahead. You see, we always look ahead to what God will do based on what God has already done. So to look forward, we always look back. And so, again, while Advent is a time of looking ahead, it is best done the Christian way by looking back. And so we're doing this as a church right now by answering this question of why is it that Jesus came? In particular tonight, we'll see that he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. as As we will see, to speak of being ransomed is also to speak about freedom. And so therefore, our theme tonight, this third Sunday at Advent, is indeed about freedom. But it's a particular kind of freedom. It's a freedom that Jesus gives to us, and the way he does this is indeed in the strangest of ways. It's in the strangest of ways for the Son of Man. And this is our main point that we will see here tonight. That Jesus ransoms you and sets you free by serving you to the point of death. Now we just read in the central text in which Jesus is revealing his mission in Mark 10, 45. When he says this, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is indeed our central verse, uh, and if I were one of the Puritans or Charles Spurgeon, I could preach a two-hour two hour sermon on this one verse. Uh, but the reality is I'm not, and I can't. So we're actually going to spend most of our time in our New Testament reading, in Galatians 4, 1-7. Because I think this passage is a kind of commentary on the passage in Mark. And indeed, I think that's kind of the most helpful way to see the epistles, is their kind of commentary on what Jesus' ministry meant and why it is significant. And so we will see this purpose, and we will see uh, what this freedom is for the Apostle Paul and what it means for Christ, who is indeed your Lord, to also become your servant. And we'll do this by beginning with our first point, that you and I are not born free. We are not by default free, this side of the fall, and this can be a hard pill to swallow. Uh, As moderns with our knowledge, and as Westerners with our progress, and as Americans with our liberty, the idea that we are not free is a difficult thing to comprehend. You see, all of these identities uh, that we have kind of shape and mold us to have a certain outlook on life that assumes a great deal of autonomy and independence. And that is not bad as far as life in this passing age goes. And yet, there's a subtle propaganda in our lives that tells us that we are free. A little honest reflection could cause us to stop and ask, is that really true? Sorry, that light, again, is brutal. (laughs) Good thing I have my southern handkerchief here. So there we go. All right. So we should ask ourselves this question, though. Are we really free? I mean, when you really get down into your heart and you feel the pressures in your life, ask yourself, am I really free? Do I really feel free? In Galatians 4, verses 1 and 2, Paul uses this illustration to speak to these Galatians, these Galatian Christians, these Christians who are tempted to add something to faith in Christ as their means of being righteous. And he uses this illustration to show the similarities between a child who is also an heir and is awaiting an inheritance and also a slave. But then Paul pivots and he makes this bold claim in verse three when he says in the same way, same way. We also, when we were children, were enslaved. You see, rather than being born free, he declares that our default is to be enslaved. It is not the result of a series of bad decisions. As if one could say, you know, I was a pretty good kid growing up, and then I went to the University of Galatia, or maybe the University of Arizona, and I got in with the wrong crowd, and I started to make some bad decisions, and here we are. Now, Paul's point here, by referring to childhood, potentially even back to the infancy stage, based on the word he uses, is to communicate that this slavery is a part and parcel of our existence, that we as fallen people are indeed enslaved, and that uh, the fact is that we have a hard time realizing this shows just how far this slavery goes. And if you are willing to go that far... Question naturally comes up. What are we enslaved to? And Paul's answer is this to the elementary principles of the world. What are these elementary principles? They are the formula and logic that is hardwired into our very being. That is the principle of earning, of working, of being good enough for the sake of a reward. It is a principle that transcends culture, place, and time. It is found in the youngest children and the oldest grandparent. It is a principle of merit and earning. And you see, while this is fine for your job, this means the greatest form of slavery when it comes to God. And this slavery, Paul calls the curse in Galatians 3.10. He says this, For all who rely on works of law are under curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And here's the part where it gets really applicable for Paul and for you and I. You see, by referring to these elementary principles of the world, Paul is showing that you don't have to be Jewish to feel this. The reality is you don't even have to believe that there is a God to feel this pressure. No, this burden is in all of us. You see, by referring to the elementary principles of the world, Paul is demonstrating a connection between trying to earn your salvation and even paganism. And this would be very offensive to his original hearers. But he's demonstrating that uh, to try and earn your salvation, this pressure to perform, this pressure that is in all of our hearts is like living as if there is no God at all. This is the worst form of slavery. And the reality is, is that you and I feel this burden. We feel the accusation of the law. We feel that we do not measure up to God's standards. And that we cannot. And this is indeed slavery. But you also feel this everywhere you go. You feel this in every sphere of life. This pressure, this pressure that is hardwired inside of your heart, inside of your mind, follows you into everything that you do. Author David Zoll wrote this book called Seculosity, uh, with the subtitle How Career, Parenting, Technology, Food, Politics, and Romance Became Our New Religion and What to Do About It says this about that pressure. Listen carefully, and you'll hear that word enough everywhere, especially when it comes to anxiety, loneliness, exhaustion, and division that plague our moment to such tragic proportions. You'll hear about people scrambling to be successful enough, happy enough, thin enough, wealthy enough, influential enough, desired enough, charitable enough, woke enough, good enough. We believe instinctively that were we to reach some benchmark in our minds, then value, vindication, and love would be ours. That if we got enough, we would be enough. And see, these are the elementary principles at work. This principle of merit, and this has you and I enslaved even more than we realize. We are not as free as we think. And yet we long for freedom. You long to be free. But we know it cannot come from ourselves. And this leads to our second point. That Christ sets you free by becoming a slave. You see, Jesus knows our plight. And he does not react to it with shock or horror. Nor does he give us instructions on how to resolve the problem ourselves. And nor does he snap his God-man fingers and saying, well, the problem of the law is simply over. Don't worry about it. No. What he does is in, we see in verses 4 through 5. It says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. In this we see how the words of Mark 10.45 were fulfilled this is how Christ serves you. Jesus doesn't serve you in an abstract way, but he does this by undergoing our own slavery, by taking on our own burden, by living with its threats, and ultimately by taking on its curse of death. You see, Jesus serves us by being the type of person that we know we should be but never could. And every day of his life, he offered this obedience that was as we say in theological terms, perfect, perpetual, and personal. And that sounds kinda out there, so what does it mean for you? Well, first of all, Jesus offers perfect obedience, which means it was without fault all of his days. Think about this, say when you come here uh, and you're in the middle of a song and your heart should be in it, your passion should be in it, and yet you feel distracted. You feel like you're somewhere else. You feel like you would rather be somewhere else. Or maybe it's those times where you're even coveting or committing some other sin. It's not even just that your heart's not in it, but your heart is elsewhere. Your heart is chasing after something else in that moment. Uh, and I know this happens to all of you because it happens to me. Uh, and I'm on staff, so it has to happen. Um <laughs> But we see Jesus resolve this in Luke 2, just as one example. When Jesus is 12 years old, his family has just left Jerusalem. They had just left the feast. They're in this huge caravan leaving, and they think that Jesus is with them. Uh, And then they realize three days later, or not three days later, but they realize that he's not. And then they spend three days looking for him. Right? Mary and Joseph are looking all over. They're trying to text him. Uh, He's not answering. (laughs) And then three days later, they find him, as it says in Luke 2, in the temple, sitting among the teachers. And he responds to their understandable question by simply saying, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? You see, in this, we see that Jesus is the only true and faithful worshiper, even from his youth. But it's more than that. Jesus' obedience is also perpetual. That is the quality that was not only without fault, but its duration never ended. Think about how big of a deal this is. I mean, think about how hard it is simply to start a new habit, uh, let alone have this kind of uh, inward, heartly commitment. I mean, we'll see how hard even just habits are in eight weeks when all of our New Year's resolutions Uh, Come crashing to the ground. Um, But you see, even in death, Jesus never stops forgiving his enemies, for example. Just as he commands in Luke 22, verse 34, when he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. You see, Jesus is the only one who forgives his brothers and his enemies alike. Every time, wholeheartedly and without reservation. See, Jesus' obedience is not just perfect, but its duration is from beginning to end in his life, even under the most dire circumstance. And lastly, his obedience is personal. That is, Jesus didn't just talk a good game about righteousness, but he himself fulfilled it. You see, we might expect a God who is far off. We might expect a God who is distant. And we might even expect a God who is nice enough to tell us how life works best. A kind of life hack God. But this God, this God Jesus Christ, some comes so close to us. He comes so near to us that as Martin Luther used to like to say, his skin actually smokes. That is, Jesus' obedience when he gives all these things, is not some kind of abstract obedience. It's not some kind of obedience that has nothing to do with your life, nothing to do with the struggles of your life, the frustrations that you feel, the temptations that you face. You see, Jesus offers this obedience in the storms of life. So the anxiety of the waiting room, the pain of a breakup, the insecurity of being mocked, and the shame of a marriage in shambles. You see, in all of these circumstances, in all of the pain that we feel, in all of the shame that we bear, in all of the guilt that we sense, while the circumstances of Jesus' life may not be identical, the temptation certainly was. And that is why it says that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who, in every respect, was tempted as we are tempted, and yet without sin. This is how Jesus comes to serve you. He does this by bearing the burden of the law that you could not. And while His service is perfect, perpetual, and personal, it would still not be complete except for this last point that you are a son, because his loyal service was to the point of death. If Jesus perfectly obeyed the law, it might indeed be a service to us. But it wouldn't have been a service that was actually a ransom. In other words, while Advent season begins with the celebration that God has indeed become Emmanuel, meaning God with us, It doesn't make a difference unless he is also God for us, for us on the cross and in our place. And that's why Jesus ultimately gives his life as a ransom for many. You see, that's why this ransom that he gives is the culmination of his coming, because his redemption is completed not only when he perfectly kept the law, uh, but when he bore its curse for sin. This is why Galatians 3, 13-14 states, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now what is this spirit about? What does the spirit mean for you? It means nothing less than this that you are adopted as sons. And so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now, to be a son is not about a gender preference, but it's about your identification as the rightful heir of God's grace. It's about your identification as a child. It means to have as a gift everything that Jesus has won by his perfect law-keeping life, curse-suffering death, and curse-breaking resurrection. It means this, that you cannot become more free than a child of God. You cannot become more ransomed than to be a child of God. Because you are free from the burden to earn. You are free to know that you have everything as a gift, Free to know that Jesus has opened up this new reality to you. This new reality of living as a child and not as a slave. It is a freedom that Brendan Manning once wrote about when he said to understand that I am a beloved child of this father and hence free to trust. Free to trust. This makes a profound difference in the way I relate to myself and to others. It makes an enormous difference in the way I live. To trust Abba, both in prayer and in life, is to stand in childlike openness before the mystery of gracious love and acceptance. That is what it means to be ransomed. That is what it means for this power over your life to be broken this power that can condemn, this power that drives you into your guilt, that hammers you down with shame, that is broken. And in its place, you are given this radical acceptance, this radical grace that makes all things new, this radical grace that comes into the midst of your life, into your sin, your anxiety, your struggle, the interrelational, shall we say, beefs, that you have with others, especially the people in this room, it comes into those and it makes all things new. It makes grace and love and acceptance the foundation of all things. And so in conclusion, Jesus has served you to the very end, even to death itself. And Jesus has come back victorious for your sake, not to make you a slave, Not to say, here you go, you can do better. Not to put you, again, uh, to give you a little more power in this way of earning, this slavery of performing, this slavery of uncertainty, but to destroy the slavery of uncertainty, of how things with you and God are. This Jesus has ransomed you, to make you a child. So you live not according to this principle of merit, but according to this principle of grace and inheritance. This is what Jesus has given you, and this is what your ransoming means. Amen.